Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our, hash, our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts are Robert Port and Millie Bombush, and today we're talking about getting your family business ready for succession. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today Michael Blake, the founder of Arpeggio Advisors, Don Bravaldo, founder of Bravaldo Capital Advisors, and John Monahan, partner at Trusted Council LLC. I'd like to ask our guests to give a brief overview of themselves and their practices and businesses. Mike, let's start with you. Uh, hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I am a, uh, I'm a business appraiser and I advise people on doing transactions involving businesses, intellectual property, and tangible assets. Uh, I'm a recovering venture capitalist and uh, investment banker. I discovered I'm not good at it, but Don is. Um, and so I often work with people like Don and, 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 and John to help people understand what stuff is worth so that they can make good financial decisions. Don, what about you? Tell us a bit about your business. Don Bravaldo, president of Bravaldo Capital Advisors. Uh, I am a reformed CPA with six years of public accounting experience, uh, which opened the door and led me to corporate M&A, where I fell in love with chasing a deal. Uh, have been at that for nearly 16 plus years advising privately held business owners. Uh, it's allowed me to create a unique boutique merger and acquisition and corporate finance advisory firm, really focused on working with closely held and family-run businesses, ranging in, in size from a revenue size of $10 million in annual revenues to $300 million in annual revenues. Uh, we face um, a, a whole set of opportunities to help our business owners with, namely uh, considering sell-side advisory, helping them plan for succession and picking the right exit strategy, and then, of course, executing that strategy when it comes to M&A and helping them implement other strategies. Thanks. And what about you, John? John Monahan with Trusted Counsel. Uh, we are a corporate and intellectual property boutique. We focus a lot on corporate and transactional work. Uh, for most people, that means just business contracts, uh, investments, uh, mergers and acquisitions. I think uh, one place where we really help businesses is on the ongoing process of keeping uh, their business going, which is the day-to-day -day operations, uh, executive contracts, uh, commercial commercialization agreements. Then we often help them take an investment. And then, of course, when the time is right, we help them either do a succession plan or uh, maybe an exit or sale. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, as we were preparing for this show, we thought that there might be generally speaking, two broad categories of family business succession issues. Uh, one would be where the next generation assumes control. Uh, and the other one could be that there is no appropriate family entity or family person to assume control. So the business then needs to be sold um, uh, to, to a third party. So let me maybe first start with, with you, Don, and ask whether... You know, in terms of those scenarios, when you are looking at opportunities to assist either buyer or seller with respect to family business issues, what kind of uh, scenarios and situations do you see which, in, in greater detail for our listeners, 
uh, present those opportunities for family businesses. Well, in, in terms of, of succession opportunities, you mean? From, from that perspective, um, we really look at uh, either internal sale options or external sale options. Uh, and we see a, a fair number of both of those. Um, when, it, when it comes to internal, it's certainly usually going to be that family-run business. And oftentimes, um, you know, it's a, a first, second, or third generation that really has an interest in seeing that business continue on. Um, but they want some professional help to make that happen. You know, whether it's, it's structuring that transaction to make it tax efficient uh, or helping them assess whether that next generation is even capable of doing it. And probably most importantly, with our involvement, it has a lot to do with, well, I'd like to see that next generation get the business, but I kind of need some money to retire on. So how can you help me with that process? And I think everyone at this table um, is involved in, in doing that efficiently. And then, of course, um, there'll be some family businesses that decide for various reasons, like the kids just aren't interested in continuing the business, that it may be appropriate to exit through M&A. Um, and that's where our involvement really steps up as well. A lot of different ways to sell a business to the outside world. Um, but we come across so many different situations, it's, it's really um, hard to just point out one that uh, is unique. One, one of the things I've learned doing this kind of work and in, other, and in other contexts is that the, I'll say the probability of a family business working its way through a number of generations, from the founder, if you will, to... Uh, their direct descendants to then a third generation is is very rare. John, what uh, experience have you had with that, and what's your your take on whether it is possible that a business that you know granddad or great granddad started you know a hundred years ago actually is still in the family? Right. I I think it's definitely possible. Um, <laughs> not always uh, likely. Right. Right. Um, I guess first you have to have good genes, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, as Don pointed out, every situation is different, and um, it's really about finding whether the second or third generation, whether you can find that person who's interested in taking it over. We find that likely, it, you might have several members, and there's one that really sticks out. The other people, perhaps, um, they don't have the interest, uh, and they're you know, you got to gauge whether. I guess what their participation in the business is going to be, and then also what the transfer down from, uh, I guess, the primary business owner who started it is, and what the ownership of people down the line is going to be. Sometimes they want family members to have some sort of ownership, even though they're not active participants. Other times, uh, the person who's going to be most active in the business is going to become the person who takes over the ownership. So it really uh, depends, and I think the key is to talk to the the business owner and, you know, get a feel for who do they trust, um, who do they think deserves the benefits and what their plan is. And that's something that we get a gauge for, but it, it obviously changes over time as well as it should and should be revisited from time to time. In, in our litigation practice, of course, we see a lot of family disputes. Um, and with family business succession, I can imagine a, a big disconnect may occur between the perception of the business owner whether he or she thinks the kids are ready to assume control, uh, maybe does or does not. And also I can envision times where kids think they are ready to take over and maybe they're not. So have you had any experience with this, Mike? And, and how do you advise the families at, at either end when you, you think that there's a miscommunication or 
maybe misapprehension about readiness for succession? Yeah, you know, this is a funny um, this is a funny part of the family business succession area. And for those of us that are in finance in particular, we don't grow up thinking we're going to become therapists. But when you get into a family business succession issue and real money's on the table, right? Very quickly, a a 30-year-old business can turn into an episode of The Young and the Restless very quickly, right? And we find ourselves in a role that, frankly, we're not all that comfortable with. I, I, I didn't grow up idolizing Counselor Troy on Star Trek, right? That's not the role I thought I was going to play. <laughs> but when you're in that scenario, the, the, the soft skills of diplomacy and negotiating and, 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 and trying to get all the sides to go in the same direction if that's in their best interest, and it may not be, right? But the, the, the finance almost takes a back seat because you've got to settle the emotional and mental part first of the finance is just an academic discussion. I've never seen an Excel spreadsheet buy or sell a business. So when you're, when you're faced with a situation like that, any of you, do you advise, as you say, you're dealing with the numbers and the valuation and how the deal should be structured, but do any of you have other professionals that you might suggest the family see to say, you know, you want to leave this business to Joe Jr., but he's incapable, you know, as politely as you can say, he's incapable of doing it. In your own mind, you may envision two years, five years down the road, he'll blow up the business. How do you, as genteely as possible, convey that so maybe you can sort of push things in, in a little better direction for your clients? I'll start out on that one, I guess. I mean, certainly it, it, it involves building trust, uh, you know, with the client. And, and usually it's, it's the founder or uh, the family member that's in control of the business to start with. Um, and, and really gaining their trust and, and then sharing your insights that, you know, look, um, you know, we are experts in our field. This is what we do. Uh, but we're pretty quick to pick up on that that next generation isn't really ready yet to manage the business. Um, and we're not capable of providing an MBA overnight to them. Um, here is a, a list of qualified professionals that we've worked with in the past that can spend, you know, a couple of years doing business coaching, for example. And you ask what type of professional we would call in. It would generally be a very qualified business coach that's, that deals often with these family succession issues. Um, that's an engagement that could last several years. And ultimately, they may, at the end of it, realize that that, that, that uh, family member is just not going to be ready to take over the business. You, you mentioned one thing which I think is very true, which is a lot of this stuff cannot happen overnight. There's a long learning curve. And, and um, John, as, as an attorney, I'm, I'm confident that your hope would be that the client has retained you for a significant period of time before this event. So you've gotten uh, their corporate structure right, their documents right, because oftentimes what we see in the litigation context is a business run by a, uh, uh, the founder, perhaps in a very uh, you know, authoritarian way. <laughs> um, there's no shareholder agreements, even though he may have given shares to family members. The bylaws were last done in 1953. Right. Founder dies or passes it on and steps aside, and all of a sudden there's, there's a mess. So maybe for our listeners, can you talk about some of the, uh, if you will, almost administrative things 
and documentation that ought to be in place to help not only the business run day to day, but as one proceeds potentially to a transition or a succession. Right. I think you made an excellent point where our hope is, is that they would have all these things and come to us very early. That's rarely the situation, um, you know, all, all the time, because a lot of times business owners are very busy building their business, as you all know. And, and also some of these conversations are quite uncomfortable. So they quite frankly, put them off so that they don't have to address them. Um, the things that we would like to see in an ideal world is constant communication with the CEO or founder about where their business is, how it's proceeding. Um, things that could help with the actual succession administratively are, as you said, getting bylaws, you know, making sure their bylaws are in place, making sure they're keeping up with their annual filing, um, getting a shareholder agreement together. Um, if they have any other owners in the business, that helps an orderly transition upon big triggers such as death or disability. Then you have to think about insurance too. Do you need some key man insurance in case something happens to uh, one of the key executives? Uh, what if the founder dies and, and the other um, and the family's left with the business? Uh, this could be very helpful in managing through those tough times. So all these things are are items that they should be thinking about in advance, and there should be a short term plan that covers death and disability, and then a longer-term plan of how am I going to retire? How are we going to transfer this to other people? And uh, really, it's a work in progress. But having those in and then good contracts along the way, um, helping relation, you know, transferring relationships to the younger generation or to the other successors in the business that are going to take over, these are all, all things that we focus on. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Robert Port and Millie Bombush from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking with Michael Blake, founder of Arpeggio Advisors, John Bravaldo, founder of Bravaldo Capital Advisors, and John Monahan, partner at Trusted Counsel LLC. John, you were just talking about um, all the administrative things that need to happen over just a, a wide range of topic areas, financial, legal, etc. Um, what if for you and the rest of you, when you start thinking about um, succession planning for a family, is there something that is a top priority or do all of these things need to happen simultaneously? I think the first thing that I want to get a hold of is what's the ownership and is it solely owned or are there other owners in the business and get a dynamic of whether the other owners are active participants or not, get an idea of the amount of control uh, where it's concentrated, and if there's some succession plan, how we can do that in an orderly fashion. Obviously, there's the business elements, but then there's also the legal elements of how can we transfer legal control of the entity along the way too. So those are things that we immediately hone in on to try to get the dynamics of the business. And from there, we start to talk about, well, different scenarios of if this happened, how would you feel how would you like it to go? And we play out the scenarios until we can get a rough feel for the type of measures we have to put in place and shareholder agreements and maybe executive employment agreements. It, it depends on where we're going, but it gives us a good feel for um, you know scenarios that might happen in the future. Um, let me follow up similarly with you, Don. When when you're first contacted by someone, what what are your and I know every deal's different, but what are your sort of first line things to look at and think about in terms of assisting your client in the transition? Uh, Robert will 
first off, oftentimes when we're contacted, um, it's through a referral. Um, someone such as yourself has a longtime client, so they've already got some insight into the business and they've gotten to know that that founder CEO pretty well. And they've got an okay picture of maybe the possibilities that they would consider an exit. So we're, we're usually not walking in cold to those situations, but we do make it a point to have them understand all of the different options that are on the table. Again, internal or external. Uh, and then we break those down for them. ESOP, management buyout, intergenerational transfer on the internal side, external third-party sale, private equity, minority, majority, or an industry buyer. And, you know, we really do a study with them. Some of the first things that we want to do, again, being technicians in, in a lot of instances, but also um, trusted counsel and, uh, and oftentimes therapist, we try and understand the business. That's, that's the fundamental piece uh, that really is going to um, allow us to make and give advice and options to the owner. Uh, we'd call it you know, just a mini analysis of where the business is today. Oftentimes, these closely held family-run businesses have been operated as lifestyle businesses for 20, 30 years or the life of the business. And many of these exit strategies, if the goal is to maximize value, what we'd love to see is an owner coming to us three to five years in advance so we can start to professionalize that business and start to unlock that hidden value in it. And uh, Michael Blake is a, a great partner in a, lot of the, in, in a lot of those cases to come in and uh, help ferret out where some of that uh, intangible value lies and, and counsel the owners too. Well, that, that's a good segue. As you were describing that, Don, it, I'm, I'm reminded of a matter I, I once had where I asked for financials for the business and I was told essentially there were none, uh, which of course I found hard to believe, but uh, you know, it was a small, it wasn't a family run business, but a very small business. So I'm sure the IRS uh, uh, liked that answer as well. <laughs> um, well, there were tax returns, but <laughs> that's, that's a whole nother story. Um, but Mike, let's, let's talk a little bit about the valuation issues that, that Don alluded to. Um, and we could, I'm sure we could talk about this for, for hours. But what, what's fascinated me as I've gotten to do these various types of cases is how many different ways there are to approach valuation. So maybe if you could, and this may be a tall order, but give our listeners a very short, quick tutorial of maybe the broad ways you look at thinking about valuation. And again, I know from speaking with you that obviously different businesses and different industries have very different ways of looking at valuation, but just you know, in a very generic way, what, what, what would you say to, to, to give an overview on that? Well, you also know, having spoken with me, the short answers are not something I do well, but I'll, I'll do my best. And, and as that question was coming out, I was thinking to myself, sometimes short questions are not my forte <laughs> either. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's funny. I gave a, I actually gave a speech at, um, uh, the, the Georgia bar last week for a, their seminar on startup valuation. And I asked, how many of you basically see guys like me as a walking magic eight ball? And everybody, pretty much everybody raised their hand. The other two people, I think, were playing words with friends. But had they been paying attention, they would have uh, raised their hands also. And maybe there's a little bit of, of truth to that. And quite candidly, I think my profession has not done enough to overcome that perception. We've, we've earned that, frankly. Um, 
But uh, I think that the valuation is best described as neither science nor art, but rather it's a craft, right? There are techniques, but there's also imagination and inspiration that goes into an appropriate appraisal. As a long preamble to answer your question very, uh, very succinctly, to my mind, I think to everybody's mind, you really look at three things. One is how much cash can the business generate in the future, right? That may or may not be connected to what it has generated in the past. That's interesting, but you don't buy the past. You buy the future. At least if you're a smart investor, you buy the future. You look at what that business prices for in the market relative to other businesses. And there are all kinds of variables, the most obvious ones being revenue, uh, profitability, growth, customer concentration is a huge variable that doesn't get enough attention uh, and so forth. So we, we call that a, a market-based technique. And then sometimes it's appropriate. You, you kind of look at a business and say, you know what, this business is basically worth the sum of its parts. And I just finished an appraisal like that. Uh, for a manufacturing company that was not particularly profitable, frankly, it was worth more dead than alive. And some businesses are, are, are like that. And that's helpful information to know. And they didn't love hearing it, but sometimes the answer is, you know, the way to maximize wealth right now, sell off the pieces and then take that cash and redeploy it into another business or a stock portfolio or, or something. And so there are all kinds of other uh, more esoteric techniques, but those are the three general approaches that we use to appraise a business. Are there other approaches that either of you take, John or Don? Well, uh, in our business, we're, our main business line is is to actually sell the business. Um, at the end of the day, uh, business value uh, is what some, another party is going to be willing to pay for it. So um, we certainly spend an awful lot of time uh, with Michael and internally getting a baseline on the valuation because it's it's hard to have and execute a plan without knowing where you're starting fundamentally in terms of value. But in the M&A world, if we are selling to a third party, uh, it's really about uh, creating a confidential auction style process. So there's a competitive atmosphere and multiple offers for the business. So many factors actually enter into that. Market timing, is the M&A market hot? Financing markets, uh, where are we in the economy? Where are we in that industry? And, um, you know, uh, is there a lot of demand for for that particular asset at any point in time? So, you know, we deal in the real world evaluation with businesses changing hands in our in our primary business. But we spend an awful lot of time doing what uh, Michael just said, because, you know, uh, various buyers are going to use those same techniques to assess whether or not, um, you know, what kind of valuation they want to offer. Let me add something to that because I think there's an important distinction. My world is about trying to figure out what is called, quote, fair value. And we can have a whole roundtable discussion on what fair means. Don's job is to get unfair value. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, if, yeah. if all you want is fair value, right, that's not, a, that's not nearly as hard or challenging a thing to do. To get, if you're selling, right, I want to get unfair value because businesses buy and sell sort of around a, a bell curve. Right, some sell for a below the median, some sell for above the median, and if you're on the sell side, you're hiring Don to sell above above the median. In fact, I just I just read something this morning: companies that have an investment banker engaged tend to sell for twenty percent more than businesses that don't. Oh, and Don Don will now be using that in his marketing. Yeah, materials. There you go. I'll, I'm buying you lunch. I'll after send it this. to you. I'll send it to you. But but that's an important distinction because although we speak a very we speak dialects of the same language. A lot of, and there is overlap, in a way what we're trying to accomplish is a little bit different. Don, Don is trying to get his client advantage in the marketplace, and my job is to kind of be a referee, 
And those are both important roles, but they're a little bit different. John, what's your role? Well, my role is a little bit different. It's usually to call Don or Mike. So (laughs) (laughs) we don't thank you for it. (laughs) Yes, we do. We don't uh, get ourselves involved in the valuation too much, except there is a little bit of um, evaluation aspect. When we set up a company, we do normally have an operating agreement or a shareholder agreement. And there's usually buy sell triggers in there. And this is, you know, when there's a sale within the company, obviously, if we're going to sell it externally, um, we seek evaluation from outside parties. But sometimes when there's a sale within the company, the parties like to agree to a preset, um, maybe multiple or book value. And I, I don't actually prefer that because I think that you're setting the business up at a very early stage and you can't really see 15 20 years into the future when this, uh, you know, when there's going to be an exit scenario and um, whether that's going to accurately reflect what the business is worth. I tend to like to put in our agreements that they will have it uh, set at fair market value and that they um, will either agree to it at that time or get an outside appraisal. But I think trying to set some sort of formulaic approach in the actual legal documents tends to be an issue which, when they look at it later, causes a little bit of friction. Let's talk a little bit about what lay people commonly refer to as a buy-sell agreement, and you've referred to that, and we've talked about exit strategies. Um, We often see in family businesses where the business is left in equal parts to two children, to three children, with no buy-sell, no exit strategy, and they get into loggerheads. And the only way to resolve that is if it can't be done consensually, unfortunately, the litigators come in and there's provisions in the law for uh, what's called a dissolution suit. You know, if people can't agree, the exit is provided by law, which is dissolve the company, call one or all three of you and essentially sell it off. So, Talk a little bit, um, John and and, uh, either Mike and or Don, about how important it is to think forward about an exit strategy, even though you think your children are going to get along swimmingly for the rest of their lives and everything will be, you know, lovely. Um, I think first that sometimes people don't put in a plan because they are uncomfortable doing it and or they may think that their children are going to get along great. I think you're actually leaving probably more problems to them and creating more friction than you are anything else. So I think it is very important to have some sort of buy-sell agreement in place, especially since if there is friction, um, and let's say that uh, there's some sort of, uh, your only option is dissolution, now you've lost all the goodwill in your business, all the ongoing future of cash flow that could have happened you're really taking just a huge loss. And it's terrible for a founder or or an owner who's built an amazing business not to be able to capitalize on that and then to have it sort of go down the drain because they didn't adequately prepare for certain scenarios. So I think that it's a huge gamble um, to not have this in place. And it's better to talk about it up front than to leave the family picking up the pieces. I mean, normally there's enough going on at that stage to where, uh, you know, this is the last thing that you really want to worry about. And and I would add one quick thing uh, to that. I think it's 
really good advice to start a business when, at the start of the business, have the end in mind, period. Even if you are a second generation or a third generation taking over, you should go into that, that management role of that family business with the end in mind. Okay, my, our goal is going to be to have this go to the fourth generation uncharacteristically. Well, we need to do everything that we can during the 20 years of stewardship to make that possible. Reinvesting in the business, reinvesting in the management team, making sure that next generation comes up through the ranks and, and gets proper training and, um, and uh, you know, has business counsel from our executive team so that they can learn to lead as well. Um, oftentimes, those are totally ignored in a family business. And as John said, all of this tends to culminate towards um, the end of a, a founder or, or a first or second generation's career. And at that point, it gets, a, it gets very difficult to start to really planning the exit and maximizing the exit. And when I say maximizing, I'm not just necessarily referring to dollars. Um, it's, it could be maximizing to ensure that that business is, is going to be transferred um, in a, a very sound fin financial way so that the next generation isn't bootstrapping it, having to dig out of debt or, you know, repair a business that's damaged. Or, or they all hate each other because of the transition. That's right. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, I think that documentation is both necessary and insufficient to accomplish that goal. The, the documentation is fine, but if you haven't looked at it since the Nixon administration, <laughs> you sort of forget what that is. And I don't do a ton of litigation, but I do a little bit. And, and the, the common thread I've seen in litigation in uh, uh, business disputes is an unpleasant surprise. And even if you have documentation in place, like a buy-sell agreement, an unpleasant surprise on, say, a, an appraisal that was done and entirely the way the buy-sell agreement said it should have been done, that's going to get to litigation at some point, right? At the end of the day, to do litigation, you need, you need two things. You need a lawyer willing to take the case. You need a judge willing to hear it. And that's not an overly high threshold. And, and so the documentation is great, but if you wind up in litigation, even if you win, right, have you really one, I'm, I'm not sure that you have, especially in a family context. It makes for very, a lawsuit makes for very awkward Thanksgiving conversations. <laughs> except in my house. Well, there you go, <laughs> except in your house, right? And, and so communicating what you're trying to do and kind of going back and looking at those agreements, do they still make sense? And, and reminding the next, hey, this is what we're planning to do. This is what you signed up for. Are you still good with it? Do economic conditions make sense? Do family conditions still make sense in that context? rather than looking at these agreements like it's a time capsule, okay, 30 years have gone by, we're going to dig it up, let's see what's inside, poof, negative surprise, and, and your document is not going to accomplish what you thought it, it was going to. Let, let's talk a little bit maybe specifically for our listeners who have family businesses, because you've all said we need to plan and think ahead as to what's going to happen with the next generation and maybe a generation after that. What are some options in a typical scenario when the founder has, say, three kids, one of them has been running, working in the business um, and is interested. One of them wants to be part of the business and maybe has no experience, and the other one wants nothing to do with it but wants to be compensated and have his or her fair share. So what, what are some of the things that our listeners can be thinking about as options before they you know, consult with a business consultant or their lawyers? 
what what are some options that could possibly be on the table for dealing with those types of scenarios? Well, I, I, I think the I think the first thing to recognize you have three problems to solve there in in that particular scenario. Um, you have you have one individual ready to take over the business. Their needs are are one set of needs. Another individual that potentially wants to do that and has the ability to do it, but is not ready. That's a separate set of needs. And then the third is the individual that. You know, man, uh, this is all great, but I I just want to get paid, right? And and that's okay too, right? You'd rather have somebody just to get paid, but not be destructive to the business. That's actually a healthy, honest conversation to have. Right. So, you know, I, I think the key is that you have three different problems to solve, and each one of those is going to have their own answer. Uh, Michael, really, really good points, and you know that's a tough one that we're not going to crack in this session. But I would just say, you know, I, I think there's a, a clear difference between shareholders that are going to be in the operating businesses uh, and making decisions. Um, I think, you know, voting shares in that scenario versus maybe non-voting shares for uh, the shareholder that is not going to participate because those are really divergent um, objectives. And for the family member that just wanted to get their check and and is not going to work in that business, they want to maximize cash, whereas the other two may be very interested in growing that business and, and investing in that business, which is going to affect the cash flow for the, the third. So I think thinking through uh, those particular issues, coming up with something that's fair, you throw overlay on top of that, the fi- family dynamic, which is always makes having a business scu- discussion uh, um, that should be fairly simple, quite complicated. Um, and you bring in John to document uh, that very, very, very carefully. Right. And I, I think there's one more thing to consider, which is the type of business it is. Sometimes it's a highly profitable business, as Don pointed out there. You know, the, people have different needs and maybe one person wants a lot of cash flow, but maybe this is an om- owner operated business. And maybe this requires an owner to be within the business. Well, at that point, it doesn't make much sense to have let's say another sibling or person involved who wants to get some sort of passive income. You know, perhaps that's not really the type of business that this is. Um, so all those things need to be considered of, uh, does this need active participation or does this not need active participation? What are the rewards to those people that are going to actively participate um, in the business? One of the issues we often see in our practice is our businesses left uh, to a trust when an owner passes. And from the legal perspective, that creates a whole different issue in terms of the duties of the trustee managing the trust. There's potentially income beneficiaries, there are remainder beneficiaries. And I'm wondering whether any of you have dealt with situations like that and how that dynamic might change further the way you look at uh, either the, the legal aspects of it or or the transition aspects of it or the valuation aspects of it, particularly with respect to the ability uh, to throw off income to an income beneficiary of a trust. Silence. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, in, in my world, that that's that's the bread and butter of what a lot of us do, right? That's the compliance side about transferring assets in between various entities and the IRS is saber rattling again that they're going to make those discounts go away like they do every eight years or so. From a value perspective, at the end of the day, the business is, itself is worth what the business is worth, but but has is the trust now making it harder or is there no longer an, a realistic option to sell it? 
And that does affect, that does impact the succession dynamic, right? The, the succession dynamic takes one, takes one direction if there's a realistic opportunity to sell the business. For example, the case we were talking about before, you have one person that has a passive income. It's hard to sell a business when that business is generating passive income. How are you going to replace that with some similar asset? And so the business itself becomes, in effect, less marketable from the seller's, from the seller's perspective. When you put something in a trust like that, you are, you are setting your family down a path where they're, they're at least going to be heavily skewed towards succession. So you kind of better be sure when you're going to do that. Don Bravaldo and and as an M&A advisor and corporate finance advisor, you know, typically our interaction with trusts is maybe on the the front end planning side with a a closely held family run business uh, from an estate planning standpoint. If we get introduced early enough, we're going to recommend that they get partnered up with a really good estate planning attorney. Um, Nothing wrong with with planning that effectively and and, uh, managing um, to transfer that business tax efficiently. Um, so the, you know, the fact that you could do a family limited partnership at least for a couple more months and, and mitigate some of that estate planning tax, as Michael referred to the IRS is relooking at a lot of those, um, scenarios and strategies. The other way we uh, may encounter a trust, and I have over the 16 years encountered a few times where there is a trustee and, you know, for various reasons that, um, the, the trustee has decided that they want to liquidate uh, the business that's held in trust. For us, actually, that makes it easier, right? I mean, there's not a whole family dynamic. There's not an owner founder that, you know, can wait six months while we run an M&A process and then suddenly look in the mirror and, and uh, change their minds at the 11th hour that they don't want to sell their baby now. So, um, it actually makes it a, a much easier process, provided that there's a good asset in the trust to sell. And for us, we're usually involved in the front end. Um, it's more of an estate planning attorney's issue as far as transferring it into the trust, but certainly we're involved. With, our experience is we don't see as many true operating companies that are looking um, to exit that uh, actually are going, let's say they have a five-year plan to sell, start to do that transfer. As Mike pointed out, um, you know, there's if you go down that road, it le- it's generally leading towards succession and other interests rather than perhaps a uh, big exit to a strategic or other other acquirer. I am sure that you all have war stories. You know, your your favorite examples of, of businesses where things have just completely gone awry uh, in the succession process. And of course, you have saved that. Um, I know we've had plenty of disputes about businesses where the, in estate planning, the founder had passed away and we find out the taxes haven't been paid for years. Uh, payroll taxes, you know, federal taxes, um, workers aren't documented. And there's maybe something in the minutes about giving a 25% interest to a son, but there are no corporate documents reflecting that except something that says it's the minutes of the company. So what are, what are your favorite war stories? Is there one that you rely on and you say, this is the bad example of what not to do? Well, I, I don't know if this is a result of, of- an example of what, well, it probably is. Um, <clears throat> this is my absolute most favorite business valuation cocktail party story. Okay. And it's going to ring um, uh, familiar to somebody in this room. I don't want to say more than that because I don't want to violate confidentiality. <laughs> but I was, give, I was given an assignment to appraise a business that 
was in the light manufacturing area that had not filed a federal tax return since 1982 <laughs> and had kept their entire financial records in a cash, uh, on a cash and receipt shoebox basis. So in effect, no financials. The owner of the business is severely injured, later dies in a shop accident. And this is an individual who had two families uh, at some point. I'm not simultaneous. I wasn't a polygamist, but um, <laughs> had, had a prior family through a prior marriage and then a current family through the current marriage. Um, the son from one of those marriages was involved in the business. But you can imagine if they'd never filed a federal tax return, right? They had no legal. When I did the site visit, I made sure not to show up in a suit, right? Because otherwise there are going to be 50 people <laughs> fleeing the scene. Um, we're all paid in gift cards, basically. Um, and, and the only financial record of substance is that there was a $250,000 note to a guy named Nick. <laughs> um, so we're not from entire, New York. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, we had to try to kind of piece together financial um, of documents. And I, I come back and they wanted to know what the fair value of the business was, because that's kind of what the law says you're supposed to do. I come back and I do all this analysis. I mean, it's really a, really a da Vinci evaluation when you think about it. And um, I come back and I say, you know what? The value of this business is zero, <laughs> right? Who on earth is going to buy a business with an unknown civil and potentially criminal liability for all kinds of immigration violations, labor violations, tax evasion, and so forth? And, and, and the attorney actually kind of chuckles, okay, I get it. So we wound up changing the, the standard of value to something called investment value, which you very rarely see. But investment value is the value to the owner, right? And so the current, now we have the, what's the value of the current ownership? And there's an interesting game of chicken t taking place because the people in the, everybody in this family, on, in both families want to get paid. And they're all basically saying, if we don't get what we want in this deal, our next phone call is to the local IRS office. We're going to blow the whistle. And we're just going to blow the whole gosh darn thing up. And so that was the interesting dynamic. So I came back with a number of investment value. And I think eventually that wound up resolving itself. But that was that was my most interesting um, family business succession story. And I just love the note to the guy named Nick. <laughs> Can you top that, Don? That's pretty hard to top, Michael, um, from a, a standpoint of what you had to deal with. Maybe I'll take a different tact and, um, and look at what was an incredible uh, business, very healthy, very profitable. But there was an underlying flaw. And this, this goes back probably five or six years ago. But we started working with a really interesting business in the environmental services field. They had grown and developed some proprietary techniques and technology that allowed them to, to go into some pretty hazardous waste sites and uh, reclaim them. They were called on on numerous occasions to work for the federal government. They were involved on some really high level and even confidential projects at, at, at some point in their business history. They were really the ghostbusters of their industry. When there was a problem too big for others that uh, or too technically challenging to solve, they would be called in. Um, and the owner founder uh, was a real genius, uh, pleasure to work for, uh, and had an amazing company. But he got interested in a new piece of technology that he developed, which was equally as exciting and, and, uh, and promising. And what he wanted to do was sell this business and devote his time to, to a new opportunity. Nothing wrong with any of that. Well, we started to take a look at this business. And while we found that they had an incredible um, set of employees, and, you know, brilliant technicians, 
um, there wasn't a lot of high-level uh, management expertise other than that owner-founder. And we came back to him and said, look, we, we think there's going to be a serious problem here um, because one of the huge caveats when he hired us was, I want to sell this and I want an immediate exit from the business, uh, which isn't something that we, we, don't, we do hear that pretty often. Uh, but the reality is buyers are, are usually going to want uh, that owner founder to stay on for a reasonable period of time. Uh, so we did our thing. We worked on it six months. We got multiple offers from the, from the industry, some pretty incredible offers from the industry, but every one of them had clauses that, that required him to stay around for three to five years. And so ultimately it didn't meet his goals and he didn't sell in, in that particular occasion. And, and the rest is history. But the moral of that story was while he built a really nice business, he did not build it with succession in mind. He did not bring up that next set of, of, of managers who could have filled his shoes and in that scenario made that business a lot more sellable and a lot more transferable. So he was, he was essentially handcuffed to his business. Exactly. John, do you have a, a, a story that will serve as a warning to all of us? <laughs> well, we have a lot of cautionary tales but, uh, and things that uh, have, have happened, but we're pretty fortunate not to have any succession uh, war stories, mainly because of the nature of our practice. Someone's usually a client, and so we have prepared for it or they're not a client, and then we don't take them on if they have this sort of issue because that's generally going towards litigation, which we don't do at our firm. Um, something that uh, we do see a lot of, though, is actually um, divorce among couples, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't necessarily a succession issue, but does create a lot of problems within a business, especially when uh, you know a husband or a wife uh, then takes sole control of the business and perhaps the other party who has left is now starting a very, you know, almost identical business to the one that they just had. So those are more common issues or, or we see a lot of issues which are generally um, ongoing operating businesses who have unrelated members who uh, steal intellectual property and go and start new businesses. Uh, those are generally more of the ongoing uh, prior to succession issues that we see. Uh, we are close to uh, ending our show and I like to ask each of you in succession to uh, give our listeners your contact information, website, social media, uh, and any other information uh, you'd like our listeners to uh, know about you. Uh, first, Michael. Uh, thanks. So uh, the website is um, Arpeggio Advisors, A-R-P-E-G-G-I-O Advisors. Um, and we have a Facebook page that's active there as well and a blog. Um, and uh, the Twitter handle is at unblakable and um, uh, email is mblake at arpeggioadvisors.com. Don? Uh, Don Brevaldo. We're easily found on the internet at brevaldocapitaladvisors.com. Uh, we're also on uh, LinkedIn. My email address is dbrevaldo at bc-advisors.com. Uh, welcome to contact us with any issues. John Monahan of Trusted Counsel. My email is <coughs> jmonahan, that's M-O-N-A-H-O-N, at trusted-counsel.com. And we can be found uh, on the internet at trusted-counsel.com. And that's counsel spelled C-O-U-N-S-E-L.com. Thank you. As we're wrapping up our show, I wanted to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges 
of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gesselowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gesselowitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Michael Blake, founder, Arpeggio Advisors, Don Brivaldo, founder, Brivaldo Capital Advisors, and John Monahan, partner, Trusted Council, LLC. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. (music) 